Welcome to Folkways, the Folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast. Hey, how you doing? Today we're heading to the salt marshes of North Essex, where I finish my conversation with folklore researcher Bethan Briggs Miller. We find ourselves in a waterfront pub in a fishing village as twilight draws in. In this chat, we consider the role folklore plays in today's world, plus fairy trees, walking without purpose, and bizarre lockdown sightings. Pull up a pew, grab a shandy or two, and join us as the crickets begin to sing. What do I see in it? Three years trying to forget it leaves me exactly still in its cradle of smug plough. When I sleep, I fall immediately back to its slippery marsh. With a low horizon of masts, it hedges me in, one eye continually opened to show my root coiled in your wound. An excerpt of Essex by Andrew Motion. The county of Essex doesn't necessarily have the best reputation. Brash consumerism is the image the media likes to portray. And whilst you can find this in certain urban areas, primarily in the south of the south of the county, and there are all sorts of reasons for this, including the overspill of London, the building of new towns, aspiration, stuff we just don't have time to get into right now, But you'd do yourself a disservice not to get to know these salty plains that look out onto the North Sea. When I think of Essex, I think of the sea. One of the longest coastlines of any county in England, the Essex coast stretches for over 350 miles and consists of sandy beaches, picturesque villages and snaking marshy inlets like that of the strange beauty of Tollsbury, for example. So for the second part of our conversation, I meet with Welsh folklore researcher Bethan Briggs-Miller in a pub in Wivenhoe, North Essex, a fishing village she now resides in, to chew the fat as twilight approaches. Wivenhoe is full of charm, its small centre replete with cobbled streets, a slight bohemian feel attracting artists as well as academics from the nearby university. Martin Newell, author of Black Shuck, the Ghost Dog of Eastern England, also lives here, apparently. We meet outside the Rosen Crown, a popular waterfront drinking establishment, just as the sky starts to bruise into pink and orange. I ask Bethan where her love of folklore all began. Well, I sort of became very interested in folklore before I moved down here. It was in the last few years of me living in Wales. Um, I'd always been interested in it, but I found this amazing book one day um, by chance. I was in this second-hand bookshop that was closing down. So, I mean, the whole place was being boxed up, and I saw in the corner there was this book that was covered in dust, and I picked it up and brushed it off, and it was The Folklore of Glamorgan by Alan Roderick, and it was the most amazing book. And... 
I still, I still quote it now. I'm still using it with Spectre of the Sea podcast because it was just a wonderful selection of tales. And I devoured it. I read it cover to cover several times. I still do. I still go back to it now and again. And then all of a sudden I met an Essex lad. When I moved down here, it was lovely. I mean, trying to feel connected to the land that I was very unsure of. I mean, I literally got off the train and was like, what the hell is that? It's the horizon. Never seen that before. <laughs> um, <laughs> a very different landscape and a very... I mean, I didn't know what to expect either of people because, you know, most of my um, experience of Essex was from Gavin and Stacey. And I, my mother-in-law was even called Pam. Pam Long. So <laughs> I didn't know what to expect when I was moving down here, but I very quickly realised that it was a very similar place. You know, there was a... I moved to a fishing, it's actually called a, um, a drinking village with a fishing problem, uh, <laughs> where I live, I love it here, and the way I started to feel connected to the land was when I started looking at the folklore, the similarities, the differences, the, the hopes and dreams and fears of, the, of society throughout the ages, it paints far greater picture than your basic history does, and that's what made me fascinated in the area and I started you know this is how I met Elsa we would swap tales in the gallery um, and it's for me it's the most fascinating subject out there because it's one of the true mysteries of the world we've figured out a lot this is a side of the world that is still magical yeah and when you when you're talking about history there I think this is what I find so fascinating about folklore the fact that it's social history. What made you start Eerie Essex? Was there a particular moment with Elsa that you thought we need to start documenting this? What was the moment that inspired you to delve into this uh, a little bit more thoroughly? It was actually during COVID where I think a lot of people made some life-changing decisions because we stopped and thought about things and had more time and re-prioritised things that we'd never had time to think about before and one of the things that got me through was listening to podcasts listening to people talking it was that sort of what you realised you missed was the banter that you had in a workplace that you had with friends who you couldn't no longer meet with and you were just stuck indoors and I listened to a podcast called Weird Norfolk it's now called um, Norfolk Folklore Society and they are fabulous I recommend anyone to go and listen to them and I just felt like I was turning turning on, no, tuning in to two people who um, l- very much like me found it fascinating and they were talking about Norfolk and Suffolk and I really felt like I was getting to know Norfolk and Suffolk and I remember thinking to myself, oh, I just wish they'd go further south and start looking at Essex and I emailed them and said, you know, I'm really loving your podcast, it's getting me through lockdown, bless your hearts. I mean, it wasn't just lockdown for me, it was maternity leave as well, so I was up all hours of the morning and desperate to listen to something whilst I was trying to nurse a baby back to sleep. And I said to them, he said, are you ever thinking about going further south? Uh, we got talking and they said, Beth, why don't you do it? And it was that sort of moment of, why don't I do it? And then I got talking to Elsa and then I really liked how they had their conversational um, podcast, sort of like talking to each other and it was that sort of like because some some folklore is daft and it's good to have a laugh over it some of it's dark so it's equally as good to like freak out over it 
um, it's nice to have that banter. So I approached Elsa and I said, shall we do it? And yeah, we, we sort of bit the bullet and just did it. And I don't, th- I think if, if it hadn't been for lockdown, we wouldn't have had time or the inclination because it would have been, we were, before lockdown, it was very much, you know, you had this automatic reaction to things. I'm far too busy, you know, and I'll never have time to do that. And since then, I'm not saying, I am no way saying that the pandemic and lockdown was a good thing. But for us, it sort of like slowed things down enough that we could say, you know, this, this actually really fascinates me. And these stories are going to die out. Yes, they're in books, but they were meant to be spoken. They were meant to be passed around over a fireplace amongst people at the darkest of winters, you know, where you're all huddled together and you're sharing stories that bring hope but also bring fear because we all like to be scared. And, yeah, that's basically what started it. And we've been carrying on ever since. And it seems to be getting more popular and more popular. People love this side of society. I mean, especially with Essex. I mean, you do... I did. As soon as you say Essex, you don't think of the wonderful landscape. You don't think of the history, the Romans, the Anglo-Saxons. You think of Towie, because that's all that's shoved in our face, thanks to um, popular culture. But it's so so much more. In your own research, is there anything that surprised you about the county? The amount of cryptids. Um, You expect (laughs) cryptids in America. You know, like their, their forests are flipping huge, you know, like the size of Britain, like 16 times over. I didn't expect cryptids at all. I thought they were long gone. Can you tell me more? Yeah, I mean, you've got... I mean, did you know that Epping Forest has a Bigfoot? No. <laughs> we lovingly call it Britfoot or Littlefoot or something like that. But there's all these weird creatures that um, have been spotted by all sorts of people. I mean, everybody knows. I mean, recently they've actually DNA tested some fur and we do have big cats. Those like you know alien black cats that have been um, told as folk tales, they actually exist. Yeah, during 1972 when they did that animal act and loads of people got rid of them, they're still hanging around. So if they're hanging around, what else is hanging around? If they're hanging around, what else is hanging around? I liked Bethan's earlier point about folklore being told orally uh, by word of mouth. It hadn't occurred to me before, but I realised this is why folklore lends itself so well to the podcast format. Yep, it's uh, great to sit down and read folktales, of course, but there's nothing quite like listening to them, no longer stored away in a dusty tome, but instead given life by the human voice, by the human breath. Perhaps they do best in this way. Otherworldly or unearthly themes remain some of the strongest across folklore, and no matter what your own opinion on this may be, what we might call otherworldly sightings are still even being recorded today. It's incredible the amount of um, people who have seen fairies, that have seen fae. I mean, that's a part of... um, I mean, especially with lockdown, there's somebody, um, I'll find out the name, I can't remember right now, but there is a lady who has done um, a survey and the amount of cryptid sightings uh, during lockdown skyrocketed. I think, yeah, the more you open your mind, I mean, the more you start reading things, I think it's all about, I think this is why during lockdown there was more sightings. I think 
we don't pay attention enough to our surroundings. We walk with our heads down, looking at phones, trying to get from A to B. It's when things slow down, which is why you get, when people like uh, are on long-term sick leave, things like that, and they go out and try to get out of their own mind, they, they come across things. It's, it's having that time and that space to allow yourself to notice the world. And we're not geared to that. Ours, we, everything is so fast-paced and our day we haven't got an hour where there's not something planned I mean I go I wake up I get the kids ready I go to work I come home from work I pick up the kids I get dinner and then you know it's, it, there's a very intense ritual there's no real time even at the weekends you know that's the weekend you, you get stuff done because everyone's at work in the week so you use the weekend to get ready for the next week it's living from one moment to the next and we've lost that time and we've lost that in not innocence i don't know the word there must be a word we you know when you hear like wonderful words in other languages that like encompass something there's a word that is time to notice the wonder we don't have that anymore and i think this is as i said why we saw so much more during lockdown because there was no itinerary there was no destination it was the pure delight of going out and being in nature and I think we noticed more and whether you noticed something or not you probably felt more connected to nature you probably felt more aware of things and I think that is the key it is finding time to allow yourself to be aware of things and it's very hard in 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 a modern society to get that do you have any recommendations as to how people might begin to uh, employ that side of their minds? For example, I'm always telling people to go for a walk. Go for a walk. Uh, not not necessarily to do a hike. We've got to get to this location. You know, the what's what's the term called? Hill bagging or mountain bagging. We've got to get to the top and say we've done it. Mm. For example, I walk a lot and. I'll often get people actually asking, this is a bit off topic, but I'll often get people stopping and asking if I'm all right. (laughs) (laughs) Doing fine. (laughs) Just wandering. Exactly. Not Um, all who wander are lost. Boom. Um, So I'm, I'm just interested, do you have some way that people can incorporate this into their everyday, not just for health reasons, but also in terms of changing their view of... The landscape and their relationship to it one thing i really like there's a couple of things uh firstly when you were talking about like you know just wandering it made me think think of that wonderful i think it was victorian or pre-victorian word coddywomple <laughs> to wander with purpose towards an unknown destination how often do you do that i love a good coddywomple i do it all the time <laughs> but i am <laughs> not typical i think we need to do more coddywompling um, but also, do you know what? Looking at maps and just picking, oh, what's that area? Instead of wondering and pondering, walk to it. Find it out. If there's a place that you've always thought about, I wonder what's down there. Go and bloody look. It could be amazing. It could be something incredible. There's a person on um, TikTok who I follow, and they do just that. They go on um, uh, satellite view on Google Maps and uh, Street View, and they look at areas where it's like, that's an odd shaped thing in the woods I wonder what that is and they go and wander there and they found some amazing things that aren't on any like websites or anything and little things like that just 
ooh, finding some adventure or something, and then looking at the old OS maps. What was there? What was the old name of the place? If you put it into the British newspaper archive, was there anything odd that happened there? I think become become more nosy. So, listeners, this is your challenge to walk towards the odd-shaped thing in the woods. Yes! <laughs> Just to let you know, I've got a little treat for the friends of Folkways. So here, Bethan shares a light-hearted and completely bizarre, what we might call, type of fae encounter that she had, or perhaps a gnome might be a better description. I'm trying to create some exclusive content for the friends, people who conscientiously and thoughtfully support this work. In the next week, you'll get an email with a private link to enjoy this account. Just an extra fun and curious addition to this month's show, which continues the theme of modern encounters from the last couple of episodes. We now continue our conversation talking about fairy trees, those whose boughs are connected to the Tullith Teg to the she. I mean, my dad's family were all Irish. Where I lived in South Wales, there was a lot of Irish immigrants who brought their folklore over with them. There was a lot of trees around where I um, lived where you know, there was said to be a fairy tree and you could see in farmers' fields. I'm sure you can down here too, all over Britain. There are trees in the middle of fields that don't make sense. Like, why doesn't the farmer dig that up and just go across it? Oh no. Yeah. The superstition is so, I mean, roads have been rebuilt around trees. This makes me think of Eddie Lenahan, the Irish storyteller in Clare, who successfully stopped a road being built um, due to it having a fairy tree on it. And, you know, he was painted as a bit of an eccentric in the media at the time. Someone, I think from the New York Times, flew in um, to interview him. But no matter what people thought, it worked. And uh, the developers went around the tree. Uh, I'll, I'll post a link to um, a film starring Eddie where he talks about this because it's so fascinating. And I was in Ireland uh, last month and I did a lot of cycling um, throughout Clare and the Burren. And I noticed that exact thing, Bethan, of these lone hawthorn trees, which you do not find in the same way um, in England, I've personally noticed. But every time I thought there's someone there's someone who's left that there deliberately. It's always a hawthorn tree. Sometimes a rowan, I've noticed, but mainly hawthorn. That's another one at the rowan tree, certainly. They're seen as, you could say, magical in some ways, but they actually have a link to beings that we might call the she, as, uh, as doorways to the other world. And there's this, there's this saying that people in general, if you say, do you believe in the fairies or the she, they're like, no, of course not. Well, it's there on camera, but to say, you'll saw it down, nobody will. Which I think gets to the heart of it, that we might not wish to admit that these beliefs are spilling over. But actually, um, when push comes to shove, we don't want to be held responsible for, um, for the destruction of these habitats, which is a, which is a promising sign. Mm, definitely, especially as it's so linked to like ecology and conservation. I'm all for it. <laughs> and before we wrap up, Bethan, I'm doing uh, a series called Folklore, Why Bother? 
I was interested to learn your thoughts. I mean, we've touched a lot, uh, probably, on what you might answer, but why in the busy modern world uh, we've got a thousand and one things to worry about, why should we be musing over folk stories and folk customs at length? What are some of your initial thoughts as to the value of doing this in the modern age? Several things, really. I think one for understanding um, a place. History is written by the winners, it's written by the people in charge, it's written by those who want it to sound a certain way. Whereas folklore is a bit more natural, it's the thoughts and feelings and the true beliefs and worries and hopes of a people. It allows a, a better clarity into people's way of life. Um, I've learned far more about um, where I grew up, where I'm living now, by looking at the folklore rather than the history. Yes, the history's interesting, yeah. The Romans came here on this date and did this, but the folklore was, oh, what were the people actually scared of? What did that bring with them? But also um, the days of folklore where people would sit around and tell stories, bringing people together, celebrating um, the changing of the seasons. We're not as uh, linked into that as we used to be. You know, like you can... Simple things like you can get strawberries any time of the year. I know that's nothing to do with folklore, but it's that sort of like, you know, moving with the seasons and being aware of what is happening in nature. And there's something about folklore and learning about the ways of nature and how it shapes the world and how it shapes us. I think there's that give and take, and especially today with, you know, the environment, folklore has more of a place. I mean, I'm, I'm involved in a project at the moment on Mersey Island um, where we're looking at coastal erosion. And it's not, a lot of people have asked us, oh, so are you trying to, you know, make people aware so it stops? It's like, it's not stopping, it's coming. But what we're trying to do is raise awareness that this is going, this land is going, and it's up to you to gather those stories as a people, as a community, and mark it in history so that future generations can learn. So we have. We haven't invented it, but there's this concept of anticipatory archaeology where um, scientists, conservationists and archaeologists sort of look to what things could evolve to to the future. And we've sort of, pat not patented, <laughs> that's the wrong word, but we describe it as anticipatory folklore. We're already starting to wonder what stories will be told because this land is going to be lost. There is going to be a new coastline. It's going to be a new shape to the land. It's not going to look the same on maps. And you only have to look at, like, you know, the predictions of the coastal line in 2050. It's a very different landscape. And what, what, what will people say in the future? Why did it happen? What weird things occurred? Are there going to be tales of, um, you know, when the storm comes, you can hear the bells under the water? This is all to come. So we're in a unique place now where we know it's going to happen and we can sort of look forward. And I think for me, that just highlights how important folklore is. It's understanding the land. And what does the future hold for uh, Bethan Briggs Miller in terms of your folklore projects? Just to say, in case anyone doesn't know, Bethan is extremely prolific. I don't know how she has time. Uh, she's the mum of two um, and has about 10 different projects at any given time. So where do you see this projecting into the future? What kind of form will your work take, do you think? Well, I think we'll always carry on with Eerie Essex. I, <laughs> we're never ever going to run out of stories for that because Essex has got so much going on. 
um, and same with Spectre of the Sea, which I'm working on with Owen Staten at the moment. That's looking at Welsh coastal folklore, and we're sort of merging it into an audio drama. Um, I'll be giving talks at several things throughout the year. I'm going to meet the ASAP conference in Bath in September. I've also got in touch with a few people, Ashley, including your good self, uh, Weird Norfolk, now Norfolk Folklore Society, the lads who are thinking of doing a Cambridge um, folklore podcast, Joe Hickey Hall, Icy Cedric, the lawmen. There's, it, there's such a lovely community of folklorists and historians and we're looking at a project to make a TV series where I think we're doing it from purely we want to do it. It's not about creating something to make money. We, we, we want to celebrate this land and what it is. And so I hope the next time we meet in a few years, maybe to talk about this again, we'll, go, we'll be talking about the TV series we make, Ashley. Why not? Watch this space, ladies and gents. I hope you enjoyed the final part of this conversation with Welsh folklore researcher Bethan Briggs-Miller. Quite a wide-ranging couple of chats with Bethan's enthusiasm for these topics being rather infectious, I think. I also hope you dug the Essex versus Wales halving of the shows, allowing us to come at this loose theme of folklore in the 21st century from different angles. I also had, to be honest, I had a slight ulterior motive for having Bethan on the show, as well as doing fascinating research. Bethan is also an excellent storyteller. This is a skill that's much harder than it may at first seem. You have to have enthusiasm, an excellent memory and command of language, plus oodles of charisma. Bethan has these, and it was what I might condense down to call life force that first struck me when I met Bethan. You know, when you meet people like this as they stand out, I hope some of this life force has invigorated, inspired, or just plain tickled you. Look after yourself. You've been listening to Folkways, the Folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast, written and produced by myself, Ashley. Music by Big Big Sky. Find him on socials and streaming platforms at big.big.sky. Be sure to connect with the show on Instagram at Folkways Channel. Stay tuned for this month's Almanac, which will be coming up shortly. If you'd like to hear the almanac before anyone else, be sure to head to Folkway's YouTube channel, which you'll find linked in the show notes, where the almanac is uploaded as an individual video at the beginning of each month. If you'd like the Folkway's tree to grow and bear fruit, please consider watering its roots. This episode was made possible by the Friends of Folkway's, Friends are excellent humans who chip in to help me afford the books I buy for each episode. If you think preserving this work is a worthwhile endeavour, you can join the Friends from only £2 a month. 
in return receiving instrumental soundtracks, letters in the post and meditations. Sharing it with a pal or leaving a good rating wherever you're listening to this also helps the show to grow. Thank you. We're now about to tune into Folkways FM. So without further ado, let's try and pick them up. Warmest of welcomes to July 2023's Almanac, where we muse over the heavens and the hedgerows for the coming weeks ahead. July, named after Julius Caesar, Old English F. Derelisa, Manx, Jerry Sowry, Scots Garlic, Inchucha, Irish, Ewell, Welsh, Gufanav, Cornish, Misgusserin. Again, listen to the similarity of those last two Brythonic languages there. Gufanav, Gusserin. For this show, let's think about weather predictions and the 15th of July, St. Swithin's Day. You may know this day is connected to the weather, but why? And who is this lad St. Swithin? So the saint was Bishop of Winchester in the 9th century, and he was a big player in the religious and political life of Wessex. He died in 862, and it'd have likely faded from public memory if it hadn't been for the purported miracles that happened when his remains were moved on the 15th of July, 971, over a hundred years after his initial burial. According to legend, unlike other religious figures, he asked not to be buried in a prominent place within Winchester Cathedral, but rather outside in a simple tomb where, quote, the sweet rain of heaven may fall upon my grave. About a hundred years later, however, It was deemed unseemly that so holy a man should rest in a common grave with the plebs, basically. So the people of the time had his remains brought into the church to be enshrined there as a mark of respect. However, strange things began to happen upon this enshrinement, the most famous being it raining extremely hard for 40 days straight, Slightly wigged out by this, the church leaders decided to dig him up once again and move him back outside, poor old boy. And it was this very odd weather following the initial moving of his bones inside that has led to St. Swithin's Day becoming associated with the weather and making predictions about it. You may well know the old Scottish rhyme, since Swithin's day, if thou dost reign, for forty days it will remain. Since Swithin's day, if thou be fair, for forty days till reign nay mare. So this idea was already current in the early 14th century, and it has been proverbial ever since. Indeed, the 15th of July is the day we crane our necks to observe the sky even today. For whatever we see is an indication of the weather that will continue for the, yep, next 40 days. 
why not have a go at this uh, mid-month? Keep this tradition alive. Have a good old gawp at what the clouds are doing as you think for a moment about this bishop from Wessex who lived over a thousand years ago. This is part of the great joy of stories. If they're good enough, they're interesting enough, in this case they're perhaps strange enough, they can live on in the popular imagination, leading us to remember figures that otherwise would likely have been lost to the sands of time long ago. If you woke up in Portishead at the beginning of July, you saw the sunrise at 4.58 and set at 21.31. Portrush, sunrise 4.50 and set at 22.09. And Perth, sunrise 4.28 and set at 22.05. A very important meteor shower begins this month, the Perseids. It begins on the 17th of July, so this is the date of the new moon, so it's very favourable as the sky will be darker. The shower has its peak in mid-August, so we'll come back to the Perseids next month. The planet Venus is at its brightest during July. It is generally close to the sun at elongations in the evening or morning sky, it may be clearly visible after the sun has set or before the sun has risen. The planet's brightness is largely caused by its dense cloud cover, which completely hides the surface. Venus has been visited by many different space probes. Because the extremely dense atmosphere and heavy clouds shield the surface from direct observation, the atmosphere itself has been extensively studied. Surface observations have proved more difficult because of the dense cloud layers and have largely come from radar observations. What we've found is that the surface consists of remarkably uniform volcanic plains with few distinctive features. The highest region is about 11 kilometers high with the temperature is approximately 380 degrees Celsius, with pressure about 45 times that of the surface of Earth. From a mythological point of view, Venus is of course goddess of love, beauty, desire, sex, fertility, prosperity and victory. The Romans adapted the myths and iconography of her Greek counterpart Aphrodite for Roman art and Latin literature. In the later classical tradition of the West, Venus became one of the most widely referenced deities of Greco-Roman mythology as the embodiment of love and sexuality. So you can mull over Venusian themes if you like as you try and spy her planetary form in the skies this month. Other than that, the bright and shining star Vega is high overhead at the moment. Vega forms part of the constellation Lyra, which looks like a small slanted box and represents the musical instrument, the lyre. After hunting Vega down, Close by, if you look, you'll see Hercules and Draco.
Oh dear, we are now entering the dog days of summer. This period from July the 3rd to August the 11th is a period of summer said to be rife with malign activity and madness. The dog days are the hot, sultry days of summer. Historically, they were the period following the rising of the star system Sirius, known colloquially as the Dog Star, which was connected with heat, drought, sudden thunderstorms, lethargy, fever, mad dogs, and just plain bad luck. These days, we take this period more to mean uh, the hottest and most uncomfortable part of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. However, this period has kept this strange association with negativity and perhaps because of their celestial counterpart, dogs in particular are said to run mad during this time. In Homer's Iliad, we have an interesting reference to the dog star. Quote, Sirius rises late in the dark liquid sky. On summer nights, star of stars, Orion's dog they call it, brightest of all, but an evil portent, bringing heat and fever to suffering humanity. Coming down from the celestial to the earthly, for foraging this month, find cherry, cherry plums, raspberries, meadow sweet, red currant, wild radishes, and horseradish. July is said to be a lean time, sitting between the earlier flowering and then the later squashes that are still yet to come. This show's place of the month is a real hidden gem in County Sligo, Ireland, called the Fairy Glen. It's a tiny micro-valley etched into the side of Knocknaray Mountain, which hides another world. The mountain of Knocknaray itself, of course, is the legendary resting place of Queen Maeve, and a place filled with Irish lore. There's a beautiful and very popular walk to the mountain's summit. Once there, looking out at the top, you find yourself looking at the giant rocky cairn of Queen Maeve's grave, the largest unopened cairn in Ireland that is thought to conceal a Neolithic passage tomb. We're going to cover this enigmatic location in detail another time, likely on the Folkways main show, as there is so much to talk about here. But for now, it's the enchanting glen etched into the side of the mountain that we're going to have a look at. The glen of Knocknaray is a very beautiful place, somewhat like a huge open-air cathedral, this large, natural, sheltered crack in the south side of Knocknaray was probably created by a fault line in the mountain when the glaciers were sculpting the landscape during the last ice age. 
County Sligo has some fascinating geological features, but the Glen is surely one of the most fantastic and underrated natural sites in the region. Let's see what William Bolfin had to say about this place in 1903. Soon after coming to the slope of the hill, you meet one of the wildest and most beautiful of glens. It is a wondrously romantic freak of nature, planted there in a cleft in the rock and walled off from the world, as if the great mother meant to lock it up and hide it away for her own use. It is thickly wooded, narrow and deep, the trees meet over the path in places, and the ferns touch you as you pass. The spirits of Knocknaray must love it here. One can fancy how they made it their own centuries ago. A mystic poet might dream his life away in it, holding communication with the hero dead of this area. And William is touching upon something there. As well as being beautiful, there's the undeniable sensation that you may have just stepped into some kind of a fairy tale. Entering the Glen transports you out of the modern world into a place that feels a million miles away. Tall walls of mossy rock trickling with water surround you, while an array of trees, shrubs and ferns creep up from the ground. The sounds from the world outside are silenced, leaving you alone in this wonderland. The Glen has an interesting relationship with megalithic sites as well. So the large limestone flag that covers the megalithic chamber at Listigil was quarried in the Glen. There are some monuments close to the Glen, um, the megalithic chamber at Primrose Grange is close to the east end of the ravine and there are a number of medieval ring forts above the cliffs about halfway down the glen. While cutting hazel for a heritage week project, what seems to be a megalithic chamber was also discovered in the lower part of the glen itself, south of the entryway. This structure appears to be a similar structure to the early passage graves at Carrymore, just a few kilometres to the east. Finding the entrance to the glen can be a bit of a challenge. There are no signposts or markers. The entrance point is now near impossible to see as the hedge and trees next to it are so overgrown. However, what you're looking for is a well uh, on one side of the road and opposite it if you look on the other side you'll see an overgrown path there you'll see uh, an old gate and it's a pair of stone pillars uh, which again are easy to miss that mark the entrance to the glen a rough narrow track then leads down through a wilderness of ferns and hazel thickets you have arrived. July's poem is an evocative one by Carl Sandberg, born 1878. This is Backyard. Shine on, O moon of summer, 
shine to the leaves of grass, catalpa and oak, all silver under your rain tonight. An Italian boy is sending songs to you tonight from an accordion. A Polish boy is out with his girl. They marry next month. Tonight, they're throwing you kisses. An old man next door is dreaming over a sheen that sits in a cherry tree in his backyard. The clocks say I must go. I stay here, sitting on the back porch, drinking thoughts you rain down. Shine on, O moon, shake out more and more silver changes. Shapers, get the butter out.